seated. Oh, we come to a very, very popular passage in the Bible. Uh, one that is actually uh, probably the more difficult one to preach in the book of James, and uh, we're going to jump right into it. If you've received one of those announcement sheets, you probably have noticed by now that there's an outline in the middle of it uh, that you can pull out to use as we, we go through this message this morning, as we go through the study of James, and uh, fill in some blanks and uh, write, write some notes down that, that might be helpful for you or something that you might want to think about uh, later in the week. And before we jump in this study, as we're, we're kind of getting down to the end of our study on James, and in March, uh, we're going to begin uh, not only our, our uh, class, adult class-wide study of the life of Abraham, but we're also going to be preaching through the life of Abraham as well. So we're going to close down with James next Sunday morning and begin James the first Sunday in, in March, or excuse me, Abraham in the first Sunday in March. And let's begin with prayer. Father, it, it seems that, that James has, has been so relentless in helping to call our attention to areas of our life that we might need to press our minds into a little bit uh, more, more longer in, in contemplation and reflection and thinking deeply about how the things that we have been blessed with that the ways and the means in which we use all of these things can somehow manifest you in our lives, that people can see the gospel in the way that we, we approach all of our material blessings. And so as we study, Father, as has already been prayed this morning, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we find our heart, soul, and mind turning toward you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, as I just mentioned, uh, coming to the end of our series in the book of James. James has been helping us to, uh, to roll out our theme for this year, which is, is going to be Amplify. And Amplify is, is a, I think, a very special word to think about um, in terms of our faith in 2016. And we use words like this a lot, right? When, when you solidify something, you make it what? A solid. When you liquefy something, you do what to it? You make it a liquid. When you amplify something, what are you doing to it? You're making it ample. You're making it big. And this is why we're studying James. James helps us to see how to amplify our faith and to make our faith something that's visible, something that's practical, something that's detectable uh, with the people that live around us and that we intersect, our lives intersect theirs on a day-to-day -day basis. And so far, this is what we've seen. One of the most poignant ways that, that a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth can illustrate the greatness of of their faith, of their knowledge in, of, of God, and the way that God orders their life, one of the most poignant ways that, that a disciple illustrates the greatness of faith is in the way that they approach suffering. That's where James just sort of out of the chute begins. The disciple does not live in denial of suffering in the world. A disciple does not live in paranoia of it. But a disciple realistically and hopefully in, in, in pain and in the agony and in the anguish and the anxiety of pain is, is understanding that God will somehow turn the evil against itself in order for that disciple to come out as the best version of themselves. 
That is, that they come out with a, with a certain kind of a wisdom, a strength, a poise, a buoyancy, uh, a, a vision, and a hope for the future, and sort of this chiseled character. Another way is for people to see how the Word of God actually is a power, a power that comes into our life. When James talks about it, and again we're still in chapter 1 of James, he talks about it in agricultural terms, that the Word of God is something that is planted in your heart, that is planted in you, which means that the Word of God somehow takes root in your heart, that your heart, your soul, your mind, the soil for the Word of God, it takes root, it begins to grow, and if it grows in a healthy way, in a sufficient way, it begins to blossom and to bear fruit. Which means, if you're bearing fruit, and this is what we looked at in another lesson, is that you live your life according to the Word of God in a counterintuitive way in light of the culture that we live in, basically all of the cultures of the world at this time. We don't live for self. We live according to the royal law. That is, you love your neighbor as yourself. It's not about me. But we love our neighbor as ourselves. James also helps us to see that the, that the power of our words and our speech patterns and, 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 and the way that we communicate with people, the words that we use on a daily basis, also communicate what the kingdom of God is like. And when those words are used to build up and to bless rather than to curse people, people get an understanding of what God is all about. Last Sunday night, kind of to bring it, this part of the sermon to, uh, to an end, we were reminded that, you know, it basically boils down to you choosing what kind of wisdom you want to live by. That you choose, do I want to live by a wisdom that comes from the throne room of God in the middle of heaven, where God is seated and recognized as sovereign and king and lord and creator and father and shepherd and all of these things? Or do we want to live according to the wisdom of the earth, which is to make it all about me? Now, uh, we want to talk about another area this morning. And I want to begin, um, you may know very, very well the community of, of, of Highlands near Houston. Many of you probably have read about it. Uh, there were some, some articles about this community in Texas Monthly in uh, 2015. Uh, pretty famous community in the Houston area. Nice big homes on a lot of acreage. It's beautiful. It's scenic. It's a charming place to live until some very serious illnesses began to show in the, the lives of the residents and families of that suburb. It turned out, after some research and some investigation, it turned out that going all the way back to the mid-60s, toxic waste was buried in, in pit along the San Jacinto River. And as the banks along the river eroded, the pits that were filled with this toxic waste became submerged in the river. Then not only that, in 2008 when Hurricane Ike came through, it flooded the San Jacinto River, flooded that entire area, and the serious health problems escalated greatly. Now there's a surreal irony about that entire community. As sad as it is, there's also an irony there. That here is this beautiful, idyllic community that underneath was treacherous. That on the outside, it was beautiful and charming and, and, and a gorgeous place to live and, 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 and illustrated success in life, but underneath it was treacherous. The point being that there in this world are some beauties that conceal a poison beneath. 
And that's the issue that James is going to approach next as we work our way through this letter. It's how do we handle the material blessings that have been given to us from God? Are we using them to bless others? Or are these material blessings that we receive from God? Whatever they might be, not just money, but all of the blessings that we receive from God, do we use them, handle them, embrace them in such a way that they become toxic to us? Now, quite frankly, church, this is not a new problem. It, it is a problem that is as old in the Bible as sexual misconduct, which means that it's not an issue that's going to go away. Every generation has to deal with it. Every generation has to struggle with what do we do with the things that come into our hands because God is generous. Now let's think about it, you know, this idea of material blessings and the stuff in our own contemporary context. Uh, Media Dynamics Incorporated revealed in 2015 that the typical American spent 9.83 hours per day exposed to media. That's TV, that's radio, that's internet, that's newspapers, that's magazines, nearly 10 hours a day. Which means that you are exposed to 362 ads per day. Actually, that seemed a little slight to me. Now, we have, you know, one of the beautiful things about living in the technology we have at our fingertips today is we've learned how to control the ads. DVR it. That way you can watch it later, and what do you do with that remote when the commercials come up? Speed right through it. Also, you know, that becomes a time to get stuff done in the kitchen, right? In my family, uh, Ellen tells me to turn it down while she goes in and finishes unloading or loading the dishwasher. I mean, they're just ways that we have learned how to deal with, with all of the ads that we run into per day. But here's the deal. Even though we can DVR, we can hit the mute button, all of these things, we can even leave the room, there are still 153 ads per day that catch our attention suggesting that we, were, we should really buy this stuff. That means the typical American is put daily in a quandary. The American Christian is put into a quandary each day. Do I need God or do I need the stuff? And for us, as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, the answer is this. Our faith is amplified when God becomes the satisfaction of our hearts. Let's say that together. The faith is amplified when God becomes the satisfaction of our hearts. Let's say it one more time, but this time with our outside voices. The faith is amplified when God becomes the satisfaction of our hearts. Now the commentators on the book of James debate back and forth whether or not James is addressing Christians or not. The reason harsh language seems to be ill-suited for the Christian audience that James is writing to. But here's the thing. Why would James talk to somebody that wasn't there? Now, this text on money and material blessings and the one that preceded go together in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, James is dealing with the struggle with self-reliance. I'm going to go to this city one or two years and work and make money, and then, you know, where's the faith? Where's the reference to God in life? It's about self-reliance. That's what James is talking about. In this text, chapter 5, 1 through 6, he's dealing with self-indulgence. Self-reliance in the one preceding itself, indulgence in this one. This is the, the, the verbiage or, or the, the language of, of verse 5. And the question is, who has our heart? Who has our heart? And both passages basically are dealing with forgetting God. Have you forgotten God? Have you, forgot to re- have you forgotten to reference God when it comes to the ordering of your life? 
Or have you forgotten God as the giver of all things when it comes to the way that you handle and the way that you use and, 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 and take care of the material blessings that have been given to you? And so when it comes to material blessings becoming a spiritual liability, James shows us two things. The dangers and the deliverance. The dangers and the deliverance. Let's begin with the dangers. One reason for the strong language is to grab people's attention. It's to grab people's attention. Now, let's step out of James for a second, and let's think about his half-brother Jesus. Think about something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as it dealt with resources, material blessings. He said this, don't store up treasures on earth. Why should you not do that? Because moths will eat it, thieves will steal it, it doesn't last. He goes on to say, store up treasures in heaven because that's where God is. That's where you want your heart to be because it's eternal, because it lasts forever. He says you can't serve two masters. Uh, you'll either serve one and despise the other or love the one and despise the other, but you can't serve both God and money. Right in the middle of that teaching on money, Jesus says, and this is verse 22, it's up on the screen, the eye is the lamp of the body. Now he starts talking about the eye and the lamp of the body right in the middle of this text on money in the Sermon on the Mount. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of what? Darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now what, in the, what does that mean? It's enigmatic. What in the world does that have to do with money? Some years ago, I was listening to some teaching on this passage. We'll never forget hearing the teacher say that out of all the sins that a person commits, the, the, the issues that a person, spiritual issues that a person has in their life, the problem with wealth was particularly dangerous because it turns your eyes blind to it. And I thought about that and I said, absolutely true over 35 years in ministry have had lots of people countless numbers of people come into the office to talk about what's going on in their life and it's been a privilege to kind of enter into the healing of their heart and soul with them but through the years, they've come into the office and they've talked about uh, addictions and adultery and anger and coveting and cheating and dishonesty and, and lust and problems with pornography and alcohol, rage, racism, all of these things. In other words, they've come in and they've talked about everything and have confessed everything except greed and materialism. I've never had anybody come into the office and say, Preacher Mark, help me. I think I'm greedy. Or Mark, I need you to pray for me because I'm, I'm materialistic. There's something about this particular sin that makes it dangerous in the fact that, well, the first danger is it's hard to perceive. It's hard to perceive. It's hard to detect. It's, it's hard to see unless we're reminded over and over again. We're made to face it. That's why Jesus speaks about money all the time. is to help people to open their eyes to what's going on in their heart. But there's another danger. Danger number two is this. It becomes a false confidence. If there ever was a passage that tried to skewer the false uh, 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 confidence that comes from trying to insulate, insulate life with stuff, it's this one. There is a temptation with wealth that it somehow 
lifts you above other people, that it makes you superior to other human beings. In other words, it gives you a one-up on others. It, it puts you on a higher plane, a different plane, a superior plane. And the danger is not to treat others who you perceive to be in the planes all below you. The danger is to not treat others in a way that reflects the understanding that they are made in the image of God. And so James grabs her attention. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Who are they crying out to? Who's hearing the cries? God. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Later, James writes in the next verse, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. When he writes that, the Jewish people in the community that hear this, they're probably making a connection with Jeremiah chapter 12 in the Old Testament where those who have been blessed greatly by God are making the lives of the poor even more miserable. At the end of a parable on stewardship, that is, you know, that we have received these things from God, they have been entrusted to us, how are we going to treat them and hold them and handle them in such a way that it brings glory to God? Jesus says at the end of a teaching on stewardship, he says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from those who have been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. There's a third danger, and there are others, but we'll look at three this morning. The third danger is that it becomes a false comfort to us. A guy that we quote a lot around here, a fellow by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a very, very good book, Cost of Discipleship, which is really him writing about what it means to a disciple during the war years in Germany, World War II years in Germany, what it means to be a disciple. He writes this, Earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from, worthy, from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. The heart which clings to goods receives with them the choking burden of worry. Worry collects treasures, and treasures produce more worries. We desire to secure our lives with earthly goods. We want our worrying to make us worry-free. But the truth is the opposite. The chains which bind us to earthly goods, the clutches which hold the goods tight are themselves worries. Another guy we quote a lot around here, C.S. Lewis. Many of you have read lots of Lewis stuff. This is from Mere Christianity. He writes, and, and this is so uh, Lewis, he says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you might be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness that money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, and in our day and age you would say swiping a card, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. James says you've hoarded wealth. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Two verses later he says, he says you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. I want you somewhere in your Bible or uh, wherever you can, make note of the words, in the last days and on earth. They are seemingly innocuous little words, and we read over them very quickly. Big mistake. Big mistake. James is reminding them and us 
that we live in a temporary world, that one day the Messiah will return, and as he says, all things will be renewed. The last day of the last days ushers in the first day of forever. How are you going to live in light of that truth? And right in the middle of this, in terms of of comfort, James also reminds them that temporary things never satisfy our true longings. We say this over and over and over again, and we say it over and over again because I need to hear it, we all need to hear it. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart, and the only thing that fits it is God. And he reminds us that these temporary things of this planet, of this earth, of these days, never satisfy our true longings. Wealth rots. Fashion gets destroyed by moths. Gold and silver will tarnish. And if that is the thing you're shoving into that God-shaped hole in your heart, in the end, wealth will eat you like a fire if it is the foundation of your comfort in this life. Paul said the same thing to to Timothy, who was living in in this big cosmopolitan city of Ephesus. He says, you know, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and what? Say it. Pierced. Have pierced themselves with many griefs. Those are the dangers. What about the deliverance? Oh, there's a a beautiful story in John 12 of this woman named Mary. She's the sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus. Mary loves the Messiah. Loves the Messiah more than anything else in the world. And she demonstrates it with generosity. She demonstrates it with generosity. She takes some very expensive perfume, some of the older translations, a nard, pours it on the feet of Jesus, wipes it with her hair. It's an astonishing display of extravagance on the Son of God. But not everybody sees it that way. You know, there's that fellow by the name of Judas. Judas gets upset because the money from the perfume could have been sold and given to the poor. John goes on to tell us because he was there that Judas didn't really care about the poor. He was the keeper of the money bag. He wanted that, that, that expensive perfume sold and could go into the money bag to be distributed to the poor, but it would have to go through him, and he liked to get that money. John tells us in the very next chapter that Satan is working on Judas's heart even at the Last Supper. My brothers and sisters, money is dangerous. And it's not neutral. You have to decide what you're going to do with it. Will it be used to bless others in the way that you have been blessed? Or will it become the poison underneath everything else? And here's the deal. The life of the innocent one, the Messiah, becomes the life of the Son of God, the life of the Messiah, the one that healed, the one that taught, the one that loved. It becomes worth 30 pieces of silver. And so James, at the end of this text, writes, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one. Who was not opposing you. 
in the death of Christ, we, we really see who we are and what we can really do in our worst moments. In fact, when you read those, in all of the Gospels, as you read those latter chapters leading up to the cross, you just see over and over and over again what human beings at their worst can really do. But we also see the possibility of what we can become. The Gospel brings the healing love of God into our own hearts. God comes into that God-shaped hole in our hearts. And once I, I experience that, and you experience that, the, the gospel frees us up to join God in what God is doing in the human project. You're no longer defined by, by, by trains and planes and automobiles. And instead of hoarding and in being about self, you become like God. Generous and loving and, and, and a blessing. You know, when it comes to money, we always think of two options. And it doesn't, it's not just America. It's everywhere you go in the world. When you talk about money and material wealth and you know, whatever material resources you have, you, you think about it at two different levels. You think about it as being rich or you think about it being poor. The gospel offers us a different. There's a third option. The third option is that we can use the wealth, the blessings that we know have come from the hand of God we can use them in such a way that people detect the presence of God in our life through the use of that money. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. It, it, it's an invitation song. It's, it's really an invitation for you to make changes in your life, to let the congregation know that there might be some things that, that you would like for us to be praying about. It, it, it's for all kinds of reasons. It may be that you've decided today that you'd like to become a disciple of Jesus, to, to turn your life around, to, to confess that you're no longer the Lord of your life, but that Jesus is Lord, that He is King. He's not just Savior, but He's also the King. And for sins to be washed away and God's Spirit to come into your life to help you as, as the Word is planted in you to be rooted and to grow and to blossom into fruit, that you become this changed individual, a life retooled to the glory of God. So as Cody said this morning, as you run, because God made you to run, you feel His pleasure. If that describes you this morning, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them about whatever needs you have as we stand and praise God together. I know.